Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, we have talked about haunted houses before. Mm-hmm. Check. Yes. And haunted houses, of course, they manipulate us. They, they toy with our responses to sounds and sights and smells, just all, just bombarding our senses with all this information. And yet, there are people out there who are always thinking, what can we do differently? What can we do that will, that will, will change, uh, the haunted attraction offering? And, uh, a Pennsylvania, Haunted House has discovered just the means of doing this. That's right. This is called a Shocktoberfest Scream Park. And I like to think of it as splicing my nightmare about public nudity yes. with a haunted house. Because this is what they initially offered. The park owner, Patrick Konopoleski, he created this naked and scared challenge to give his guests just another level of heightened fear. It's an add-on. It's an add-on. In fact, they had, uh, I I believe the options were nude or prude. Okay. Prude is like underwear. Prude is underwear. So you go through your underwear, you can go through completely nude. And, of course, this uh, caught many people's eyes. The story went national, and city officials really frowned upon it. Uh, you know, presumably there'd be a lot of liability here (laughs) with your your junk hanging out, Uh don't you think? Well, potentially. I mean, that's kind of what we're going to talk about here is like to, to what extent... I mean, are you actually more vulnerable, more prone to injury if you're running through a haunted house naked? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but but is it really that different, say, from like a summer wear that somebody's wearing? Like, are you really if you're just wearing like swim trunks and a tube top or something, then are you really that that uh, that much more protected? Well, I don't know. When you are wearing a tube top, how do you feel? Well, not not, not a tube top. I guess something like a. Uh, what do you call it? Like a sleeveless kind of shirt thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, that is the question. So, unfortunately, the owners of Screen Park uh, were not able to actually pull this off because, uh-huh. again, city officials were not liking this. So they do have the prude option. So, you know, so the prude option is still around. You can mm-hmm. run through in your underwear. Yeah. Okay. Which I do think there's still a nice level of vulnerability there. And uh, we'll definitely talk more about this. Yeah, it depends on the underwear, though, because like boxers, I feel like boxers, that's more protection, you know, because the boxers look a little more like shorts. And then if you throw in like an underwear shirt as well, I mean, you're basically clothed at that point. If you count socks as underwear, even more so. Yeah, but tidy whities are keeping it closer to the body. Tidy whities, I think, would ha- would need to be the, the rule because tidy whities are both a little more skimpy mm-hmm. and also ridiculous looking. So there would be no, it's not like you're wearing like wrestling tights in there and you're, you know, ready to go. It's you're wearing tidy whities. You're wearing this ridiculous dingy white underwear with a penis flap in the front, which I've never understood. That I think is for another episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we should probably also discuss the television show, which is called Naked and Afraid. Yes, and you were telling me about this, and I thought you were making this up. I thought this was a, a, a Julie pitch for a, a, a for a reality show, but uh, as it turns out, someone beat you to it on this one. Yes, yeah, someone did, and actually, our our mother company, Discovery, really, oh, okay, Communications, actually produces this show. Um, but it does seem like something that would be on Thirty Rock. That's like you know Milf Island. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, Naked and Fred takes two survivalists, a, a man and a woman, and they drop them in the middle of an isolated area. Mm-hmm. Naked for 21 days with no food or water. Like rural Georgia? 
or uh, no, I think uh, Costa Rica, oh, okay. Panama, somewhere fabulous, somewhere okay. fabulous and isolated, and okay. um, but you know, again, here's this fascination with this idea that we strip ourselves down to the essence, you know, bare as babies, and we go out into the world and try to fend off all the actual real threats as well as the imagined threats. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the thing itself, right? I mean. Uh it's the, 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 the bare human without any of the, uh, the, the clothing and, and armor that we've uh, built up over the ages. Well, and that kind of takes us to this, this other place where we have to say, as organisms, why in the world are we naked anyway? I mean, we are obviously doing pretty well as a species. Homo sapiens are, are killing it out there, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we don't have hard shells. Right. Uh, we don't have claws to attack people with. Right. As we do have these big, beautiful brains. That's right. We've, uh, you know, we we talked about beards, and we talked about to some degree there are arguments that the beard gives us certain amounts of protection against bites or scratches or strangulation or what have you. But yeah, for the most part, like the naked human is a pretty unremarkable creature. It doesn't have horns. It doesn't have any of these crazy additions, except those that we've invented over the years with that tremendous brain. And I want to point out, I think that the beard, although it could blunt a blow to the jaw, mm-hmm. I would think that someone could actually like drag you around with it. Yeah. It would be a hindrance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we, we got into that a little bit, too, like the the, the subject of beards in uh, fighting sports. Mm-hmm. To what degree, you know, you can grab onto a beard. And that was one of the reasons that um, Alexander the Great supposedly told all of his soldiers they had to shave the beard because someone could grab it and then stab you in the eye a few times. Whereas uh, there are also those in the MMA world who say, well, if you grow out just enough stubble, then you can mm-hmm. rub that into people's face and you have an offensive weapon. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just as a female and the beards that are in that stage yes. that are quite awful, sort of like torture devices. I can't help but laugh yeah. at that one. Um, all right. So we're going to look at a creature here, the octopus, and we're going to try to get down to this idea of uh, nudity and brain power. Yes. The, the octopus, of course, is an amazing creature. Uh, recently, we were talking about the way that the, the podcast has changed the way that we uh, approach our lives. And I mentioned that I don't eat octopi anymore mm-hmm. because I, in our research, uh, I discovered how brilliant they are in their own way. And I say in their own way because uh, take, for instance, the mirror test for uh, self-awareness, mm-hmm. one of the hallmarks of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of intelligence. And uh, you, you can, there are a number of organisms that can pass this test, including, uh, including humans, uh, including uh, uh, some, uh, some primates, etc., uh, an octopus will fail the test because the octopus does not have this mammalian brain. It has a mm-hmm. very advanced brain, but it is it is evolved to the state uh, from from a far distant starting point than any of these other uh, examples that we have. These vertebrate examples. So they're incredibly uh, brilliant creatures, mm-hmm. but in a very different sense, in a very alien sense. Yeah, and for for a long time, scientists have been saying we don't understand how it could have such extreme intelligence and be so very different from our own nervous systems. Yeah. And here's why: uh, octopuses have 500 million neurons to our 100 billion. So you'd think that they would come up short in the smarts department. Um, but about two thirds of its brains are distributed in its arms, and it's dedicated to the fine operation of these limbs and, and doing really. Uh, nuanced and complex things. Yeah, camouflage, lines. changing its shape, changing its color, um, and all of these problem-solving powers that they uh, notoriously have. That uh, any anytime you read about them, you hear uh, aquarium owners or researchers talk about what great escape artists they are. Yeah, 
It's because they've got hundreds of suckers, you know, lining these limbs and all the neurons to go with it. Now, the rest of the neurons are split between a central brain that is surrounding the esophagus and large optic lobes behind the eyes. So you think about this and then you think about different accounts of of things that octopuses have done. I'm thinking about the researcher who had something like five different octopuses in separate tanks, and she had some old food, and she knew that they wouldn't be crazy about it. Yeah, like like rancid, not rancid, but like old frozen squid. Yeah, yeah, yeah not nothing fresh. Um, and she she fed all of them, and then as she was walking back up, she uh, came up to the first tank, and she saw the octopus was staring at her, and, and, and it it seemed to her that the octopus actually waited until they made eye contact. And the octopus stuffed the food down the drain <laughs> as if to say, not only do I reject this, but I'm going to show you to what degree I reject it. Yes. And I want to make sure that you're paying attention here. Not mere rejection, but rejection with spite. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there, there are so many different accounts of these sorts of great things, you know, stuffing themselves into empty coconut shells that have fallen on the ocean floor in mm. order to escape predators. Hot wiring cars. <laughs> yeah. Hot wiring. Stealing identities. Yeah, credit cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... From the article, how the freaky octopus help us to helps us to understand the human brain and wired. I just wanted to read this quote. It says the octopus got smart because the octopus got soft, or vice versa. It has no bones, no shell, no scary spikes. So if the octopus wanted to go hunting in an ocean full of fish that are also hunting sometimes for octopus, it had to become fiendishly clever, not unlike a certain shellless, clawless, furless primate we could mention. Yeah, because when we've discussed before, uh, when it comes to evolution, like the ocean is an incredibly dangerous place, like far more so than uh, than the surface world, just teeming with dangers. And so there's just the the, the arms race there is just elevated uh, to a degree you don't you tend not to see uh, on the surface world. You know, I guess in the jungle you can say it gets, it gets close, but but for the most part the ocean is just this deadly race. And so you look at the octopus, and when it's uh, when it's alive and moving, you you are seeing all the shifting of shapes and colors. It can make its texture look hard yeah. and rough and rugged. But if you have a dead octopus and it just you know washes up on the beach, it just looks like a sack of flesh. There's nothing there's nothing hard. There's nothing rugged about it. In a sense, it's all a bluff. It's all it's it's uh, it's it's neurons powering up and creating this display, and you can make the easily make the argument that humans have done the same thing, though instead of making our skin crawl with crazy textures and change mm-hmm. colors and all, we have invested in clothing. We've invested in in garments and and in some cases actual armor that makes us physically tougher, but in other cases stuff that changes the. The, the, the visual proposition of what we are as uh, an individual in the species. Well, as land lovers, too, um, you know, we, we got our neocortex, as mammalians have, and that really upped the game, too, because mm-hmm. now we have theory of mind. I can try to figure out what you're thinking. Yes. And I can try to strategize around that. Um, so you're not only just taking in all that data, but you are analyzing it to such a degree. So it is interesting how you put it that way. You've got the ocean, which is an entirely different game. And so you would have organisms developing different intelligence systems as opposed to, you know, what we're doing here on the land. Yes. Uh, But of course, the one thread that runs through all this is this vulnerability, this nakedness. Now, one area where this uh, this idea of heightened vulnerability while while nude really comes into play uh, is in our our motion pictures, Uh, because for the most part, most of us have not had the experience of running through a haunted house naked or fighting for our lives naked. But uh, our our heroes and heroines 
uh, sometimes do encounter mm-hmm. the situation. A few examples that uh, instantly come to mind, of course, uh, Eastern Promises. Yes, with Viggo Mortensen. Yes. That scene of him in the shower duking it out with Russian mafia members. Yeah, like a, a pack of clothed Russian mafia members with knives. With knives, that's right. And he's right. just naked and like... Uh, like a, just very, you know, covered in tattoos, very lupine looking, you know. I was going to say very animal like yeah. looking. And he's just fighting for his life and he's being stabbed and beaten. I can't think of a, a scene that made me wince more honestly than that scene when I saw it. I was covering it like it was just a horror, you know, film and that there was like blood. Of course, there was no blood, but yeah. Uh, yes. Very effective use of nakedness. So that's that's easily the one that came to my, mind uh, the most. Some other films that have included some some similar scenes. Uh, I'd forgotten about this, but Memento has a scene where Guy Pierce is uh, assaulted while naked, and he's like fighting him off. But it's nowhere near as uh, as uh, as intense as Eastern Promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a scene in American Psycho where Christian Bale's running around naked with a chainsaw, but uh, that's different because he's the one. With a chainsaw, you know, if you're ca- carrying a chainsaw, then you're you're kind of not really naked. Uh, there's a scene in The Hangover where uh, an individual is naked and attacks somebody. There's a scene in Beowulf, uh, school ties. There's a, like a shower fight. Um, Fargo, I'd forgotten about this, but the scene I where Steve Buscemi yeah, yeah. is um, is uh, making love to a prostitute, and uh, and uh, an individual comes in and starts roughing him up and just throwing him all over the place. There's of course a scene in Borat where uh, where Borat wrestles uh, an individual and they're both naked, and uh, and it's it's awful. It's awful. Um, there's a uh, there's of course the the old Ken Russell film Women in Love. Uh, it's kind of famous for a nude wrestling scene with Oliver Reed. Uh, you know, very in a, in a very manly sense. Uh, and uh, and then uh, in, if, when it comes to um, to literature, mm-hmm. I'm instantly reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis's Paralandra. Which uh, which has a lot of nudity. Like the, they could probably never film it because there's a lot of nudity in it. The the character Ransom uh, lands on this uh, this fictional version of the planet Venus. It's also kind of like uh, Eden, a biblical Eden. Uh, so he lands there and he's walking around naked. And then a scientist by the name of Professor Weston lands as well in a little spaceship. Weston is clothed, but Weston is also possessed by uh, the devil. And it eventually gets to, to a situation where they they have this this fight, and it's like the the, the devil is biting at him and all, and he's fighting him naked, and it's uh, and, and I remember it as being very uh, very nail biting. Yikes! Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is interesting because it brings in that element when you talk about Eden and you talk about devil, uh, this element of shame yes. and nakedness. Because which- what happened to Adam and Eve? They uh, they screwed up, and so suddenly they can't walk around naked anymore. They have to wear those leaves. And that wrought all sorts of psychoanalysis uh, for them. Yeah, especially when fall fashions hit, because they just crumble at the, the slightest uh, movement, and then you have to grab more leaves. It's a problem. Uh, let's take a break, and when we get back, we will talk about this shame associated with nakedness. All right, we're back, and we are going to dive into nudity and shame. Yeah, and you know, it, it's it's interesting to to think about nudity and shame because I often feel like in Eastern Promises, I, I, I it never crossed my mind. Oh, poor Vigo, it's so shameful that he's having to fight naked. You know, like I don't like shame doesn't really factor into my fear for him. Uh-huh. But obviously, shame is a huge part of nudity and our aversion to nudity, particularly in uh, 
in, in Western culture. Well, what's interesting, too, about a lot of the clips that we saw that were sort of a top ten list of naked fights mm-hmm. is that not one woman showed up in those. Oh, excuse me, one did. She was having sex oh. with the nude guy who was shooting. Um, oh, yeah, Clive the, Owen and Monica. Lewinsky. Ba, well, Belus, Belushi, the, the, the one who was uh, in The Matrix. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, her. So what's interesting about that is that those nude scenes with women, they, you know, that's the violence normally in a nude scene with a woman is, is foisted upon them. It's not usually a fight scene in which, you know, they're toting guns around or or knives. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see shame and nudity rendered in that way. Right. But we have to, we have to think about what is shame. And, and also we have to differentiate shame from guilt. So how would you how would you describe guilt? Like if you're guilty about something, it's a, it's a rather different animal than shame. Okay, well, uh, according to a collaboration between scientists at the University of Buffalo's Research Institute on Addictions and George Mason University in Fairfax, shame is definitely not the same as guilt, and shame actually has implications regarding misuse of alcohol and drugs. So all that shame that we think about in terms of our body, it's more of uh, a thought construct, right? It's yeah. not associated with an act, usually. So if I have a dream about being naked in public, and this is more of a nightmare, it's more of an impending feeling that I have, um, you know, I have done something. It's a little dread anxiety associated with the shame, as opposed to like, you know, I, I, I did something sexual or bad, you know, this mm-hmm. one act. Yeah, guilt tends to imply too that you you really did something wrong that you're you're responsible for, you know, that you're culpable in. Mm-hmm. Whereas shame, not necessarily. Like if you're ashamed of your body, you're not going to be persecuted because your body doesn't match your own personal expectations of it. Yeah. And uh, and and, and uh, likewise, as this study uh, uh, looked into uh, when when they were dealing with shame, like mm-hmm. individuals who had like the bodily uh, signs of shame, like the sunken shoulders and all, yeah. those were the ones that were more likely to relapse uh, into their ad- addictive behaviors. Yeah, we should mention that these studies were all surrounding addictions and behavior. And the, the first study that they had, it was uh, three groups of participants with different levels of alcohol or drug problems. Mm-hmm. There were two groups that were primarily female college students, about 20 years old. The third group was comprised of predominantly male inmates from a jail who were on average about 31 years old. And what they found is that shame is is the tendency to feel really bad about yourself following a specific event. And people who are prone to shame when dealing with a variety of life problems may also have a tendency to turn toward alcohol and other drugs to cope with this feeling. So that's what the deal is with guilt and shame. It turns out that guilt, um, which is, again, something that you're feeling bad about, which is a, a specific behavior or action, that is unrelated to substance use problems. And as you had mentioned, there was a, f- a follow-up study that looked at the body language of people who felt shame about their addiction yeah. and could accurately predict whether or not that person would have a relapse. Yeah, you know, the more I think about it, shame seems to to really make more sense in terms of something that is an ongoing uh, issue. You know, something that could be seen as a, if not a character flaw, then mm-hmm. a then a deep flaw in that person, either physically or spiritually, mentally, what have you. Yeah, and I think that's what the interesting part of the the body language, uh, what it's telling. The observers here in this study, I said that was a follow-up, and it's actually not. It's a 2013 University of British Columbia study. So 
There's 46 participants who were videotaped several sessions throughout the year. They, they found those greater levels of shame behaviors in that first session showed that they were more likely to re- relapse by the second session. And by the way, any sort of written or verbal expressions of shame did not predict the likelihood of relapse. It was, the, again, that physical manifestation of what shame looks like. Which leads into the research uh, conducted by Brene Brown, uh, who is a professor at University of Houston, Graduate College of Social Work. And she studied shame for six years. And she found a lot of uh, a lot of correlation between shame and not only addiction, which we've been discussing, but also depression, violence, aggression, bullying, mm-hmm. uh, suicide, and eating disorders. So she makes the argument that uh, that guilt is more useful, uncomfortable, but but adaptive. You know, it's it's something that can actually be spun off into positive growth. Whereas shame is more. I mean, we get into you know discussing shame spirals mm-hmm. and this idea that 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 shame is not only feeling feeling responsible for what you did and realizing that what you did is wrong on some level, mm-hmm. but but feeling this this low level of self worth about it that you you almost don't have the the energy to. To, to fight the temptation or the um, or the need to do it again. You know, what's interesting about that is uh, when you talk about the human body and you talk about nudity, mm-hmm. some people will have very strong reactions to their image and they might have, you know, eating disorders or other disorders that sort of warp their sense of um, self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And what Brown says is that perfectionism, which you often see with eating disorders, is a form of shame. And she said, uh, where we struggle with perfectionism, we struggle with shame. Research shows that perfectionism, perfectionism hampers achievement. Perfectionism is correlated with depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis or missed opportunities. The fear of failing, making mistakes, not meeting people's expectations and being criticized keeps us outside of the arena where healthy competition and striving unfolds. It reminds me of that uh, episode of Community where um, where they're all taking this pottery class and uh, and uh, and Jeff Winger's failing miserably at it, uh, and, and is just really frustrated with his miserable pottery because he was hoping it would be an easy class and he'd be able to to, to pick up uh, women. And then there's this <laughs> there's this doctor in the class, uh, you know. So he's, he's already an overachiever in some respects, and then he's also creating this beautiful pottery, even though it's uh, like a pottery 101 class. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the, the 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 characters are arguing over whether this guy is uh, you know an expert who's come in to just pretend that he's just starting and he's a natural. Or um, you know, or or he just is a natural. And at the end of the episode, you you get insight into this uh, this doctor's uh, uh, like dark inner monologue, where he's uh, he's really striving after this perfectionism out, out of this deep uh, sense of shame. Isn't that funny? And that 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 uh, even the results mm-hmm. will never be good enough. Yeah. Right. So even if he produces this piece of pottery that's museum grade yeah because he's because he's coming at it from the sense of shame the sense that you'll never achieve mm-hmm. uh, what is expected of you yeah and we'll talk a little bit more about some of Brene Brown's insights into shame and vulnerability but I did want to mention um, that bullying and nudity in in virtual reality is a thing <laughs> yeah um, the point of this 2007 study of the game Second Life was actually just trying to, to figure out uh, how bullying would work with new residents of Second Life. I'm mm-hmm. sure everybody is familiar with Second Life, uh, this virtual representation of yourself and this virtual world that you can insert yourself into. And it's a highly social world. Yeah, it's not just creatures running around uh, killing monsters or, uh, you know, or, or fighting each other. There's like, for instance, I attended a uh, church service in one 
once. I'm, I'm not really a Second Life user, but mm-hmm. I was attending a church service, and uh, one of the organizers there put on, uh, like on the screen, a church service that was going on in Second Life, and so there were all these characters that were worshiping in as their avatars mm-hmm. uh, in this virtual environment. So if you're not familiar with Second Life, just be aware that any and everything seems to go on there. Right. I mean, you basically can conduct a version of your life in Second Life, your avatar. Yeah. You can do things, obviously, that you never could do in your life. Right. And for many people, it creates it's a you know tremendous uh, social outlet that they might not have, especially you know if they are um, uh, you know they're they're in, in an area or in a place in their life where they don't have you know physical access to mm-hmm. uh, to a, you know some sort of supporting community. Well, researchers from Nottingham University Business School, with the permission of Lyndon Lamb, who who uh, developed Second Life. They set up a cyber-based focus group to discuss the problem of bullying directly with residents of Second Life. Um, and the new residents they found were often the target of bullying, which included destroying a newbie's house, right? So a, a mm-hmm. newbie avatar's house, shooting him or her, swearing at them, and then displays of public nudity. From the bully or like making the other person naked? From the bully. Okay. Now, in some ways, this is... <laughs> This is trying to shame the residents by showing them how uh, how highly they have mastered their their abilities of their avatar. Okay. You know, to say, like, this is how you get naked. Well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to get naked in front of you right now because that's, that's the level of, of my abilities. But um, And you, newbie, you don't even know how to put your clothes on. <laughs> but on, on, on another level, too, it's sort of an aggressive act. Hmm. In, in the sense that nudity itself is... Offensive or just sort of breaking social norms. I think it's breaking social norms, taking mm-hmm. on the power of nudity to to expose oneself in this virtual realm. Hmm. It's got a lot of layers to it, yeah. actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, nudity. Like, for instance, um, one of the stories you've uh, told before is when you were in New York World Science Festival, mm-hmm. and like a, a nude, or was she topless? She was topless, I think, right? She was topless. She yeah. just had like cut off jean shorts, mm-hmm. shoes on, but no top. And she was just walking down the street and she had crossed in front of a church. Now, at the same time, there was a bride emerging from a car mm-hmm. and about to, to go up the steps. So at the same time this was happening and I was absolutely amazed because I felt like I was the only person who noticed, you know, bare breasted woman coming uh-huh. at me, but everybody else was looking at the bride. Hmm. So to uh, wonder to what extent she was weaponizing nudity or, you know, using it as a, a blunt instrument. I did not get the sense that she was just had forgotten to put her shirt on that day. <laughs> yeah. I did get the sense that she was doing it in, in a um, very intentional way. Yeah. Well, and you, I kept looking around for cameras and I did not see any. Well, we've spoken about performance artists before, and uh, there are many, uh, many examples of performance artists using nudity as a way to in some cases, uh, you know, as, as an alluring uh, method, but often it's kind of like a shock. Uh, uh, some, uh, for instance, uh, and I forget the name of the artist here. It's referenced in our um, How Hula Hoops article works on how stuff works. But there was, I want to say it was an Israeli or Palestinian artist who uh, did this video series where uh, it's like a woman naked hula mm-hmm. hooping with a hula hoop made out of barbed wire. Mm. So it's not alluring at all. I mean, some maybe, but... Um, but it, there's this, you know, you, you're hit with this sense of she's naked, she's vulnerable, and then for some reason the hula hoop is made out of barbed wire, and you see it like cutting into her flesh, mm-hmm. and uh, 
it's uh, it's very disturbing. It reminds me of some of the work that we've talked about with Maria Abramovich, yes. who um, she had one performance art installation in which she was naked, and then she laid down next to a variety of objects. I think there was a gun there, there was a rose, mm-hmm. a couple of other objects, and people could interact with her using those objects. And she found that people got progressively uh, more violent hmm. or just even threatening with her. So what we're seeing here is that nudity is is both the seat of vulnerability, but it can also be the seat of courage. Because uh, on one hand, we can think of uh, of the emperor's new clothing, where here's this uh, here's this buffoon who thinks he's wearing clothing, and everyone's mocking him because he's just walking around uh, naked through the streets. Or you think of any example from uh, in, you know in any kind of um, historical or you know biblical account where individuals are stripped naked and reduced, you know mm-hmm. any uh, any kind of uh, slavery or imprisonment situation. Uh, you know, examples of Abu Ghraib come to mind as oh, well, yeah, yeah. where individuals are are stripped of their clothing and mm-hmm. in, and, in, and in doing so, they're stripped of their dignity, mm-hmm. and it's and it's used you know as a as a weapon against them. But then there are other examples where the nudity is very much a symbol of courage. I mean, think of all the the Greek statues we have of. Uh, of these nude individuals, you know, wrestling with each other, or a nude man wrestling a centaur, uh, in any um, any example like this, where the nudity is is their their seat of strength, and and I think a lot of those examples, not the Steve Buscemi one, but but some of those examples uh, that we talked about in movies, mm-hmm. that's what they're really going for there too. It's like the the man himself is you know without clothing is bravely fighting like like some Greek statue or some classical painting. Yeah, I mean, there is this idea that um, in the flesh, completely stripped down, you are actually sort of taking the shackles yeah. of whatever it is that we saddle ourselves with and casting them away. And I think of our friends, the Germans, uh, who do this really well. Yeah. In fact, there's something called Freikorps Perkotier, which I listened to Forvo about. 50 times to try to say that, and I still will apologize to our German friends out there. Um, but this translates to free body culture, and uh, naturism is really big for, for Germans. This is, uh, so this is nudism. This is, uh, this is being free with your body, walking around nude in, uh, in a not necessarily sexual manner, just saying, I am a nature boy. But it's more than what we think of here in the United States when we think about uh, nudity and public nudity. And we think about these different areas where basically like recreation parks where you can go and be nude. Uh, I mean, this has its roots uh, pretty strongly in Germany. In fact, that movement, the naturism movement, got its foothold in the late 19th century during the Victorian era. era. So mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing, right? And the first nudist camp opened near Hamburg in 1903. Now, one in ten Germans take a naked vacation at least once a year. Oh, that's awesome. I, I know. That's just according to Kurt Fischer, the president of German Association for Free Body Culture, by the way. Huh. So, again, there's this idea that there's more of an acceptance of one's body. Yeah, I mean, I, get a, I definitely get a sense of that when I go to uh, the Korean uh, sauna. Uh, that we have locally, and granted, it's uh, it's segregated by by gender, mm-hmm. but in the the in the men's side, the side that I go to, um, you'll see all different body types. So there'll be you know there'll be some like young dude who's like super cut. There'll be some just old wretched looking individual. Mm-hmm. There'll be everything in between, and. And what, you know, your first exposure to it may be a little, you know, like, whoa, everyone's naked and I'm naked. What's going on here? But then I do th- feel like it, it, it quickly settles and you suddenly really don't care. My experience there was that, and I was on the female side, <laughs> uh, was that 
I, I could not believe the variety of body types yeah. because as a female taking in all the various bits of media, mm-hmm. you know, you tend to see the same bodies over and over again. And I don't go around seeing a lot of naked women around me. So to be in a room with women who were not representative of media, but representative of the greater culture was amazing. Yeah. My, and that was what my brain was trying to square is all those different shapes. And then, as you say, it just sort of became like, these are bodies. Yeah. So I can see where that would be really liberating for people. And it can, I think it, it, I can see where it's also difficult to understand if you haven't, you know, gone to a sauna environment like that, if you haven't skinny dipped at, you know, at some hippie get together or something where on the outside, it seems like it might be something kind of sleazy. Like people are going to be naked in the same area. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something wrong going on here. But no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it has its roots with, with ancient bath cultures, uh, that, uh, outside of, you know, Scandinavia, uh, really dried up, uh, over the past several centuries. Mm-hmm. I will be honest though and say that I hoped, um, that I wouldn't see anybody that I knew. Uh, yeah, I've never encountered someone that I know, but my, my wife has, like, encountered people where she either knew them or they knew somebody she knew and, I guess that could be a little weird. But on the men's side, there's not a lot of, like, I understand that the lady side, there's more chit-chat. But on the men's side, it's a lot of dudes stoically sort of staring at the, the floor. Yeah, there's a lot going on on the, on the female side. I'm not even going to get into it. I'm sure you've heard. Um, all right, so I wanted to bring up Brene Brown again because she has a, a really nice TED Talk on vulnerability, emotional nakedness, what we're talking about here. And... Um, she has said that as a culture that we are doing harm to ourselves and not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable or show that um, show our weaknesses and that trying to covering them up again, just like perfectionism, closes us down and closes us down to opportunity. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of our recent episode on clothes cognition about how clothing that we wear changes the 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 idea of who we are, the feeling, the internal feeling of who we are, but also the uh, the, the version of ourselves that we're putting out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and when you, when you strip it all down and you're just dealing with the creature itself, then, uh, I mean, the, 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 the speed with which we actually understand another person increases. So we have all these levels of clothing that change the, the proposition of who we are, mm-hmm. both to ourselves and to outsiders. What happens in the mind, in the brain itself? When we strip away all that clothing, when we consider each other. Well, your brain actually gets a boost in power, it turns out. Because if someone were to look at a bunch of images of nude people as opposed to clothed people, scientists have seen that their brains, which of course are scanned by MRI, Mm -hmm. are able to process those images much faster. So on one hand, you could say, no, that's because they don't have to deal with all of the detail that enclosed cognition, for instance, might put forth all those symbols inherent in the clothing. Right. All, the all those hand, overt symbols and then clothing symbols, mm-hmm. color theory, um, reshaping of the body mm-hmm. and, and camouflaging of our uh, perceived faults through clothing. On the other hand, Spanx, etc. Spanx that yeah. that takes up a lot of time in cognition. There, it does. Um, you could say though that uh, just seeing the naked human form get you get a boost in your brain because that's something that is so easily recognized to us, and it's something that I guess on a reproductive level we would have a response to. Huh. Which someone could argue that that's one of the reasons we enjoy looking at nudity in art, not merely from a 
you know, a, a sort of, uh, you know, alluring side, though obviously, uh, you know, figures of, of the naked female or male form are pleasing to the eye. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but then it also may just sort of refresh us. In a way, it's kind of like, uh, imagine a workplace where you just have, it's like an anatomical, almost, uh, you know, Voyager plaque-esque image of a, of a nude male and a nude uh, female on the wall. Mm-hmm. And just so every now and then, like, things start getting complicated and, 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 uh, and, and worrisome, you can look up and be like, oh, well, that's what we are right there. That cre- that creature and that creature. Well, and there's something that's, um, that that's equalizing about that, yeah. right? So everybody is naked, right? And they always say that when you go and you give a talk, right? Imagine yeah, imagine everyone naked. naked. Yeah, and and it, it makes more sense when you think of it that way. It's like, look at the, they're just people, just like you and me. And if you were to take their clothes off, they'd all look varying degrees of ridiculous. Now, that's what Brene Brown says that is the courage of doing that emotionally. Yeah. And to show people that we, at the bottom of everything, we are all human. We all have... You know the same emotions, the same sort of um, hurts, and 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 the same sort of joys and rewards in life. Mm-hmm. So she says that we should be able to show that to show our our emotional nudity to people, and she says that that actually is what makes something accessible, hmm. because otherwise it's very hard to relate to other people if they seem perfect, right? If they don't seem emotionally available or vulnerable. Yeah, and I've also found that like. Like real nudity, like there's emotional nudity where it's coming from a place of honesty, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, well, this is this is a real person. And then there's kind of uh, aggressive emotional nudity. That's like, like narcissistic nudity. Yeah, like stop waving your emotions in my face kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Well, I wanted to, to uh, read this bit that Brene Brown actually brought up in her book, Daring Greatly, because she said she got this idea of shame and vulnerability mm-hmm. from rereading a passage in Theodore Roosevelt's speech, Citizenship in a Republic. The passage is, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And he gave that speech naked. Most people don't, don't realize that. Naked they don't realize that. And, and when marred he was, with dust and sweat and blood. He, he was referring to a naked fight in that passage. Yeah. 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 So there you go, a little insight into the links between nudity and shame, nudity and strength, nudity and terror. Uh, certainly think about that as you watch some of the films we mentioned here or any of the other films out there that have scenes uh, that feature male and or female nudity and scenes of terror or suspense. What role is the nudity playing? How are they, um, how are they, they, they tweaking the message of the film, uh, by using that nudity or are they just using it gratuitously? Yeah, let us know. And I have to say, us doing the podcast nude, <laughs> it's not as weird as I thought it was me. Noel, what do you, Noel, yeah, our producer, he's fine with it too. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, it worked out. Now, would you do, would you go through a haunted house naked though? I would not. Yeah. You, I mean, first of all, it takes a lot to get me into a haunted house. So to ask me to to uh, drop trowel, yeah, that would be sort of problematic. Yeah, I, I guess I would I would be up for it if it were if it were a good haunted house and not just like some sort of a gimmicky thing. Because there were there was been there have been some haunted houses that have come through or popped up in the Atlanta area that have featured nudity on the part of the performers, and it just sounds a little eh, like I don't really want any of that. Again, I just I'm so pragmatic. I go toward the liability thing. Yeah, you know, stuff hanging out. 
you know, you don't have much light going through, something's going to happen to someone's parts. Well, I feel the same way when my son is running around naked. Mm-hmm. Like, my thought is he's going to fall and skin his wiener on the concrete. And I, it, and I'm just like, let, let's get some pants on him just so when he falls that he's not going to hurt his wiener. You're a good dad. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let us know. Would you go through a haunted house naked as well? Yes, and scenes from films, uh, comics. Uh, literature that have featured nude fights that were really, uh, that, that actually worked and actually had, uh, had some sort of effect on you as a viewer or reader. Let us know about those as well. You can find us in all the normal places. Of course, our mothership is stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where everything, uh, floats to the surface. But you can also find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We're Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And on Twitter, our handle is BlowTheMind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.